Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, this week, I'm joined by my friend Vladislav Davidson. He is the author of a forthcoming collection of literary and political essays titled From Odessa with Love. He is also a cultural correspondent at Tablet Magazine and a fellow at the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council, and perhaps the most natally dressed Ukrainian you'll ever meet, be it in New York or in Europe or Indeed, uh, he divides his time between Odessa and his other home is in Paris. Uh, Vlad, it's great to have you on. And I, because this is a, a program going out on the internet, I don't mind admitting that I haven't read your book, but that's not going to stop me from talking about it anyway, or rather turning it over to you to talk about sort of what's in this. I know it's a compendium of essays ranging about eight years from 2013 onward. They're all about Ukraine which is a subject uh, near and dear to my heart and to this program. And you cover quite a lot. Saakashvili's tenure as the mayor of Odessa, short-lived 18-month tenure, Paul Manafort's manifold interventions into Ukrainian politics, and which have become a sort of geopolitical football uh, in the last several years. And then your own kind of you know, you, you publish a literary journal from Odessa. You have a sense of the color and atmospherics of a city that uh, perhaps not many in America can appreciate the way Ukrainians do. I mean, this is, in a lot of respects, a lot like New York, cosmopolitan, a bit rough in places, a lot of culture, opera, arts, but also organized crime, which I, I definitely want to pick your brain about because I've actually been researching a, a bit of that in the Russian Civil War era for my book on the GRU. So Vlad, I mean, in your own words, like what, what are you trying to accomplish with this book? Uh, these are like 45 essays or so, right? That you've spent almost a decade writing. What do you hope readers take away from it all? Hi, Mike, thank you so much for having me. I, uh, it's a really great pleasure. And you know, I'm a, a great fan of your work. This podcast, I was just listening the other day to uh, our friend uh, James Scher, who's a who's a wonderful analyst. So it's really great to be on here and uh, to have a chance to discuss Odessa and Ukraine with you. So this is a collection, a compendium of almost a decade of my work. It's about 45, 44 pieces and three long conversations that I had with um, three important people. I think one a writer, one a, uh, a classical music conductor, an American who he conducted the Odessa Philharmonic by the name of Hobart Earl, and one with former ambassador uh, Stephen Pfeiffer. So the book is uh, cut between culture and politics, uh, a lot of both, and also culture is, of course, political, and politics here uh, has a great deal to do with cultural divides. Let's not say linguistic divides, because people who say that about Ukraine uh, don't really know anything. But culture, is a, a, in, its, its, in its wider sense, is a very important issue that doesn't quite get a lot of traction in the writing about Ukraine. There are not that many people who write about Ukraine, and the number of books about Ukraine, compared to, let's say, Russia or China or um, Iraq or Iran, is minuscule. There's just not so much writing about Ukraine. There's maybe been a dozen books and about half of them good enough, good books in the last four or five years about the Maidan, about politics here. Uh, I'm talking about non-academic books, even though my press is called Academica Press. It's very much a non-academic volume. There's just not a lot of writing about Ukraine. So I, you know, I've, I've devoted my career to it and, and 10 years of my life to it. So I, I, you know, it's a place I really care about. 
tell us a little bit about you grew up in Odessa, right? Or did you grow up in the United States? I forget. My ancestors are from this part of Ukraine, and my great-great uncle was this composer, Isaac Dunayevsky, who wrote the theme song to Odessa called Odessa, Odessa. I'm sort of uh, connected through culture in my blood to the city. I was born in Uzbekistan to Ukrainian Jews who fled from Hitler. I spent my childhood until the age of seven in Moscow, and then I grew up in Brooklyn. And I was educated in uh, uh, UK and, and, and France and New York. And then I, I wound up here in my mid-20s after I, I was living in France with my then Ukrainian girlfriend, who's now my Ukrainian wife. Right. And so when did you move to Odessa? When did you kind of make Ukraine your permanent perch apart from France? I started coming here in 2010 and we, we started spending the summers here. And I fell in love with the country and I knew that something was brewing. And I knew already in the spring and summer of 2012 that something was going to happen. I thought it was going to happen in three or four years. I was off. It happened in 18 months. I mean, it was already obvious. There were a lot of telltale signs if you were actually living here and spending time here that there was going to be some sort of political explosion. I didn't really imagine that it would be a world historical revolutionary situation. And Ukraine, of course, is a place that has uh, world historical situations happen every four or five, six years. It's a country that's never given a president a second chance. The country's 30 years old. It has had five, well, not always peaceful transfers of power, but it has a rotation of government has had six presidents in 30 years. More than I imagine any other post-Soviet Republic, although there's 15 of us and I'll have to do the math and figure out maybe someone else has had more heads of state. But this is a country that never gives a leader a second chance. It has a tremendous tectonic plate movement inside the country. It has a lot of tremendously interesting political issues and tensions within the country, which uh, give it its oomph and also key one part or oligarch or person or political fraction or ideology from dominating the country. So it was obvious to me in 2012 that something was going to happen. And I mean, you, you refer to world historical changes or political cataclysms. I mean, a lot of Americans, first of all, don't think much about Ukraine, if, if at all, and probably could not explain or understand what's so world historical about this place. And, you know, unfortunately, as, as you and I, I think, can appreciate because of the last several years, the first impeachment of Donald Trump, Ukraine was injected into the American discourse in a very unfortunate and deleterious way, right? As this kind of cauldron of corruption where dodgy actors, we couldn't tell, or the average reader of the New York Times perhaps couldn't tell good from bad, were trying to you know, manipulate an election, you know, all these allegations that the, the rather wayward son of Joe Biden had got caught up in a, a dodgy, corrupt Ukrainian energy company called Burisma. So, I mean, Ukraine came to be defined not in and of itself as its own kind of independent sovereign state with its own history and, and sort of culture, but in relation to American corruption and American political dysfunction. I mean, talk a little bit about, you, you were obviously there whilst so-called Ukraine gate was going on. And I mean, I want to get into your coverage of Paul Manafort and which, and, and you know, all of his lobbying and kind of dark money dealings going back even before Trump. But what, what was the kind of mood in Ukraine during the, the first impeachment? I mean, obviously Zelensky was, was walking a knife edge of not, you know, saying anything that might antagonize Donald Trump, trying to flatter and appease him to a certain degree, but also not doing his bidding, which is essentially what that president meaning the American president, wanted of his Ukrainian counterpart. What, what did Ukrainians make of seeing this spectacle play out 
on 24-7 cable news channels in America? Yeah, that's a great question. I remember, first of all, having to explain it to just ordinary Ukrainians or my friends, some of whom are extraordinary Ukrainians and some of them are just people I like very much. Some of them are members of a political elite and some are, are artists and some are just normal people uh, in my social circle or my wife's social circle. And what was just striking was how little attention was being paid to the scandals. In a sense, maybe this country is just a newer to scandal, but in any other country, I can imagine in Thailand or Moldova or in Greece, if the, the Greek political class was just in the middle of multiple American presidential election scandals, just multiple, not even one, but many, the entire population would be riveted. You know, a medium-sized country like Morocco, let's say, uh, also tens of millions of population, you know, about the same size of territory, maybe the same weight in the international arena. The entire population would be watching on television and just glued to the radios and, and in a combination of national pride and national shame, just really interesting. Ukrainians didn't care. It was very interesting. They did not care at all. They did not follow the details. They could be bothered. And even amongst uh, political elites, uh, amongst members of parliament or amongst people in the NGO class here, it was just like, oh, another day, another scandal. I would go into the presidential administration and talk to high-ranking people there. And they, you, you know, they would be asked about Giuliani or, or someone like that. The press secretary would ask her about this or that. And she would roll her eyes and she would say, oh my God, please stop. So, I mean, in, in a way, would you say that sort of dealing with Ukrainian corruption for so many decades has desensitized Ukrainians to the American version of it? Or was it just a sense of, I don't know, too many kind of time zones away and a whole other set of political cultural dynamics in the United States that they couldn't be bothered with? I think the latter, but also, uh, also the former uh, a little bit. Uh, there's also the interesting component, uh, 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 I think, not very well understood in the United States, that American corruption and Ukrainian corruption are embedded in each other. They're, they're tied together in some very interesting ways. For a long time in Washington, D.C., Ukraine was seen as an ATM machine for people from both political, from both political parties and from multiple political vectors. Uh, let's say fractions in Washington D.C. There were, uh, you know, the Clintons were coming here and they were making uh, the foundation was making ten mil tens of millions of dollars with uh, speaking fees and all sorts of things. A lot of people around McCain were involved with making money here. Uh, one of them was Paul Manafort. Uh, until McCain understood from from his other people that he needed to take distance between him and Paul Manafort about 12, 13 years ago. Uh, Obama and Trump were uh, of, of the last eight uh, in, in four election cycles. You have eight presidential candidates. At one point I sat down and, I, and counted it and I, and I figured out that five or six of the, of, uh, the last uh, eight major presidential standard bearer in four election cycles had connections to Ukraine in terms of either them or their chief of staff making money. And I mean, is that because Ukraine is a more economically permissive environment um, with, you know, its own natural resources and I mean, the breadbasket of Europe and so on and so forth, uh, unlike Russia, where American politicians simply couldn't go and invest and try to, you know, kick up energy deals or whatever it is that they ended up doing? It's because this place is 
sort of like a, a free zone. It's free in the sense that it's anarchic. And then it's also free in the sense that there are not that many rules or norms here. I mean, no one goes to prison for anything major in Ukraine if they're in the political class. Actually, uh, I, I often like to say this, but the only major people who go to prison for crimes in Ukraine are prosecuted by Americans. So Manafort and Lazarenko, prime, former Prime Minister Lazarenko, who later became naturalized and is our uh, fellow American now living in California. Those are the only two major members of Ukrainian political class, let's say Paul Manafort was, who went to jail for anything they did here. So you have this combination of impunity, a tremendous amount of black cash in a, in a black and gray economy, just swirling with cash where a lot of stuff is done off the books and you can get paid in briefcases and cash, a corrupt space, and also with extraordinarily competitive elections, unlike most places. In Ukraine, you have uh, elections that can be swung to one candidate or another. All you have to do is buy the right consultants and pollsters, which did not exist here until Americans like Paul Manafort and his crew arrived to use their skill set. So they totally transformed the political system here in the sense that for them, no one knew how to run a political party or how to do campaigns or advertising or anything that's taken for granted in terms of campaigning in a, in a normal Western democracy. So they came here and they made tremendous money and they came into contact with political power here. It's funny because I mean everything you're describing, the sort of eccentricities of having um, a fairly competitive, albeit somewhat perhaps rigged is too strong of a word, but you know, oligarchically vested or manipulated political system, unlike Russia, where we the outcome of a presidential election is a foregone conclusion. All of these things tend to, to seem quite endearing to at least Americans in the postmodern age, where you know, oh yeah, corruption. I mean, everybody does it and, and everybody's looking to get theirs. So, so what's wrong with that? And as you pointed out, I mean, successive American administrations have had key figures mobbed up, if that's the right word, perhaps it's, sure. it, it is in many ways, you know, in, in Ukraine. And yet, you know, there, there's this kind of salesmanship going on in Washington. You know, Biden believes very strongly in the American-Ukrainian alliance and sees Ukraine as a kind of a keystone of the European project, right? You know, Europe whole and, and free. This is going to be the continuation of, of 89, which is the one kind of foreign policy principle he has that I think is very customary for a conventional democratic politician. And yet it doesn't seem to have like penetrated the American consciousness that Ukraine is this, not an indispensable ally yet, but one in the making, if we were to really pursue the kind of relationship that certainly a lot of political brokers in Washington, D.C. seem to invest in this country. So I, I, there seems to be kind of like a paradox here, right? On the one hand, there's so much potential. Even the flaws or the, the vices are vices that are very intelligible and attractive to Americans. And yet, I mean, most Americans just don't, they don't seem to care or it's not, it's not on the radar in the way that other countries, you know, France, the UK, Western European, Germany, especially, that these these relationships are. I mean, what, what do you think is missing here? What's the sort of X factor that has, has yet to be played to sell Ukraine better to an American audience? It's a great question. In fact, uh, you know, that's, that's what the book's about. My book is uh, a love letter, actually, literally a love letter. It says from Odessa with love, as in, you know, yeah. it's a pun on uh, James Bond, but it's also a pun on, you know, a, lo a love letter to, to a place from another place. Uh, and, and in fact, 
fact, I have um, on the cover, uh, I have uh, my own designs, my own drawings of, uh, of letters and ink stamps from Soviet time. It's a wonderful place that, that I'm obviously enamored in, that obviously I care about, and obviously my ancestors are from, but I, I don't expect other people whose ancestors are not from here or unlike you, who are uh, not connected to security discussions to care about this country intrinsically as much as I do, but they should. And part of the reason they should is that there is just a, a kind of a tremendously willful energy here to, um, to kind of anarchic freedom that you don't always see in Russia, which, which has kind of a lethargy to it and a kind of passivity to it occasionally in terms of democratic demands. Ukrainians are not like that. I think Americans and Ukrainians share a lot of values. Mm. That's an important thing. In terms of a security posture, if we're just going to be that vulgar, it's a country that is extraordinarily important for security arrangements and the security posture of the European Union, having borders with Romania, Bulgaria, Moldova, Poland, has a, a water water border with Turkey, of course, and it has a, 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 a very long border with Russia, obviously, which it's no longer in control of. If the country fell, let's say, or was destroyed, or if parts of it became ungovernable or like Somalia and a little piece of it became a, a kind of standalone Ukrainian Republic in, in, in the West next to the Polish border, uh, the entire European security posture would have to be realigned you would have to restructure the entire force position of the Polish troops uh, in Poland. You would have to add more troops uh, in, in Romania from NATO. You would have to uh, shift around all sorts of things like missile bases and uh, anti-rocket radars all over Europe. It's, just, it's an important country, geographically speaking, because uh, if you have uh, Russian troops in it, you have four European Union countries which are now under direct threat, and you would have to do something about it. But of course, you do have Russian troops in it, not just in occupied Crimea, but still in Donbass, right? Which is part of the problem. I mean, there's a kind of new neo-realpolitik argument, which has emerged certainly in the last 10 years, but I, I would say has gathered steam in the last five which is informing everything from U.S. policy positions in the Middle East, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the imminent withdrawal of American forces from Iraq, to our engagement with Europe, which says, look, you know, this is a return to kind of the spheres of influence posture that Ukraine belongs to Russia. If we're really, if we're thinking of, of international relations like a game of Stratego, this is their backyard. Why should Americans invest so much political energy and capital in trying to make Ukraine uh, a stalwart ally of the United States and of Europe. And now Putin has put these rather sizable facts on the ground in, in controlling Crimea. I think the latest estimate that I had seen from the Ukrainian Defense Ministry is a trebling of um, Russian conventional military assets in the peninsula, to say nothing of the expansion of the Black Sea Fleet and you know the, the deployment of caliber cruise missiles and submarine forces and so on and so forth. So sell me on the idea, or, or in your book, do you try to make a case that despite all of these disincentives or all of these problems that have been thrown up, we still need to 
retain Kiev and this relationship, and we need to, to expand it. We need to have it flourish in a way that it is not in the past. And also, I'm wondering, insofar as America still puts its money where its mouth is, so to speak, in terms of foreign policy and the values-led foreign policy, and democracy, transparency, market economies, anti-corruption reform seems integral to bringing Ukraine further into the American camp. And yet, it's the stuff of vaudevillian comedy when you go to Kiev that yeah, 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 everybody campaigns on doing this, but nothing is really done, at least not to the extent that Western partners and allies would like. So if you had to kind of make the boardroom pitch for Ukraine as this, as you say, you know, a very necessary and vital ally of the United States, in spite of what's what's taken place through acts of Russian aggression over the last decade, what would you say? How would you argue that point? Oh, man, the fate of my fellow Ukrainians rests on my shoulders. By the way, you don't even have to just do it. I mean, I, I, I couch this in kind of security terms, but I think that's also misplaced. And I, I want, you know, you wrote a book largely about culture, literature, the arts. I want you to talk about that as well. In terms of the exportation of culture, we do have a sizable Ukrainian diaspora in the United States. I think an even larger one in our neighbor to the north in Canada. What needs to be done to kind of make this uh, make this argument? I mean, it depends on, on how uh, pragmatic we have to make that argument. Uh, and let's, I mean, I, I, can, I can wax poetic uh, about the, the security ramifications and, and the fact that our Euro European allies need this more than we do. And the fact that we need to signal to the world that our values mean something and our commitments mean something, that we need to show a good example to the other post-Soviet people. And that uh, obviously President Putin is afraid of most of all, what, what is known as democracy contagion. So he cannot possibly allow Ukraine to become a success story because uh, the people of Russia would want the same thing. Yeah, I could say all those things. A practical recommendation. I'd rather uh, defend Ukraine on its own merits, which have nothing to do with the needs of Americans. Let's start with Russian democracy. Where does Russian democracy exist? It exists in basically three places, in certain kitchens and living rooms and private spaces in Moscow and St. Petersburg amongst uh, liberal opposition-minded people, a few other uh, little islands, pockets of resistance in the private sphere, right? They, they do exist in Russia, but it's, uh, that is not Russia. The second place where Russian liberalism, Russian democracy exists is in the diaspora where I grew up. I'm very much a child of the diaspora, a son of the Russian speaking Russian diaspora in Brooklyn, in New York, in London, in Israel, Russophone people. I mean, you have Russian speaking democratic culture. I mean, they might not necessarily be ethnic Russians. They could be Jews or Ukrainians or Kazakhs or whatever. They have Russian speaking culture. And this is where Russian liberal democracy lives. And the third place, the only country really where Russian liberalism and Russian democracy stands on its own two feet as Russian speaking sovereignty in a large state where tens of millions of people live democratically and have the rule of law and, you know, with whatever problems of corruption and uh, all sorts of other issues in their day-to-day -day life. But they live in a democratic polity where day-to-day -day they speak Russian to their uh, mothers and their lovers and they, and they read the newspaper and Facebook in Russian. So uh, I, I think that's very important. That's not important for America. That's important for Russian civilization as Russian civilization or Russophone civilization as Russophone civilization. I think that's good. Yeah. One of the things that struck me and, you know, my first trip was 
in 2014. And this is, I guess, received wisdom because I hadn't been there before to observe for myself if it was true. But everybody I was talking to from the intellectual to the political classes were saying, Putin has done us a favor by revivifying or redefining Ukrainian nationhood and Ukrainian peoplehood. And for us, what's important now is to define ourselves not even paradoxically, despite what I just said, not in relation to or in contrast to Russia, but as our own kind of sovereign, independent being, right? Going back to Kiev, and I think I saw you there at the Yes conference, what, two years ago? Yes, sir. Yes. There was this weird, this weird thing taking place, which I was sort of uneasy about at first. The term normalization, which any country under occupation loathes, you know, because it's the idea that you're just growing accustomed to being oppressed. But normalization, at least in Kiev, had begun to set in in a very positive way, which is suddenly the topic of conversation was no longer the war. It was no longer, you know, little green men and Crimea. Uh, not that these things have been sort of forfeit to the conversation, but it was about where do we go next? And, you know, you could even see like luxury brands pouring into Krishatik, uh, just life on the street. Suddenly the, the sense of, of trauma and the siege mentality that had prevailed in 2014 for very understandable reasons that had dissipated. And Ukrainians were getting on with their lives in a sort of not oblivious way, but you know what I mean? They were asserting themselves outside of these, these Russian imposed parameters, sure. which is a very positive thing. And it speaks to your point about, look, you know, this is a, a Russophone part of the world where democracy does exist. I mean, it's, it's flawed. There's kind of venal trappings to it, but that's the case everywhere, even in the United States now as in a major fucking key. And so for its own sake, it's, it's almost like if you're taking the Pepsi challenge of what what a post-Soviet democracy could be, Ukraine versus Russia, Ukraine is, that's the brand that you want. And it's also, as you point out, for someone like Putin, I mean, this is the kind of bugbear for him. Like if it succeeds there, then in his mind, there's the potential that it could succeed in Russia. And that has to be stomped out, you know, at every turn. It's funny that we're, we're having this conversation. I'm, I'm literally editing a piece by Andrei Soldatov about the FSB's foreign intelligence branch, which sort of sounds odd, right? Because this is a domestic intelligence agency, which created in 1999, a foreign intelligence apparatus to compete with that of the SVR and the GRU. And the reason being is the FSB had signed all kinds of agreements with Soviet republics, including Ukraine, but also Georgia and Belarus, that it would not spy on them and they wouldn't spy on Russia. Ha ha ha. I mean, of course, nobody really enforced that rule. But you know, one of the reasons that when shit hits the fan in, in a place like Ukraine and, and, you know, the Russians conduct hybrid warfare, that the FSB tends to take a first among equals role is that in the, in the Kremlin's mentality, this is still part of Russia, right? This is their, their near abroad. This is their domestic sphere. Absolutely. And ending that illusion is very integral, I think, not just to how Ukrainians see themselves, but also how the West sees Ukraine. Absolutely. All of that is, is quite right. I have so much to add to all of that. Let's start with the fact that the last thing you said is that there is no Russian empire and there's no uh, revanchist postmodern Russian near abroad type postmodern empire without Ukraine. This is the heartland of uh, the Russian empire and always has been. And any Russian imperial project quickly collapses without Ukraine at, at its center as, it, as its breadbasket or as its motherly historical antecedent. Uh, clearly, it's, it's a very important thing 
symbolically for the Russian near abroad. I mean, they don't, they do not consider it uh, to be that. They don't, they don't consider this to be a separate nation, even though it absolutely is. So what you were saying about intellectuals here, uh, saying, thank God for Putin, he gave birth to a Ukrainian political and civic nation. That's absolutely the case. That is the pretext and the subtext and the context of this book is that I'm trying to explain the, the culture of this political revolution. These pieces, most of which were written after 2014, it's a collection of my pieces and essays and book reviews and some other incidental things that I wrote afterwards and some connective tissue. It's a book that really charts the creation of an independent Ukrainian culture, which they didn't really put energy into shaping until until 2015, 16. Yeah. The most part, Ukraine was part of a single cultural membrane, a single cultural space with Russia. So basically, they didn't really have a Ukrainian film industry until 2011, 2012. They would watch Russian films. There was not really a Ukrainian book publishing industry. There was, but when the entire population is bilingual, they will buy Russian books when they cost 70% less and they, they come from, from Moscow and St. Petersburg and there's dumping in the market. Yeah. You know, you don't have a, a developed book market, you know, when the entire population is equally comfortable reading in Russian and Ukraine, they'll just buy Russian books when they're cheaper and there are no local Ukrainian publishers and not as, not as many translators and there's not an infrastructure for books. Mm-hmm. I think 14 out of the 16 Ukrainian book fair and writing programs that I know of were founded after 2015, Hmm. which I think is indicative. Yeah. So everyone is on the same social media platforms until 2017 with their Russian cousins and friends and ex-girlfriends and people they were in business with 20 years ago. The Russians have interlocking distribution networks and radio uh, payola and the film industry. You know, there was no independent Ukrainian distribution network for films until the war started. Not really, you know. Yeah. So the country was basically totally integrated in a Russophone cultural space. And to some extent, it still is. There are a lot of connections, but they're being cut. Some of it by government fiat, some of it by by civic activism, and some of them naturally. Mm. There are no more flights between Russia and Ukraine. Trains, I think, now are being stopped. The Ukrainian Ministry uh, of uh, of Infrastructure is making traveling to Russia very difficult. Trade is realigning to the European Union. That umbilical cord to Russia is being cut, and culture is at the center of it. Vlad, listen, when the book comes out, why don't you come back on and maybe um, we should have you in conversation with another colorful figure, Peter Pomerantsev or someone of that ilk. Oh, great. To uh, discuss the finer points of being sort of Russophone children of, I guess, in your case, you were a repat. Peter is still an expat. I I don't even know. He was an exile who went back to Moscow and then came back. So what is that? A a tripat? I'm a tripat. He's a tripat. You know, Peter and I are of the same tribe. I love Peter in that case. Peter, I love you. Thank you for writing the... He must feel the same way about you. So, oh yeah. Well, let me, uh, a bit of uh, marketing on your behalf. When is the book out? In a couple of weeks. I mean, in September 1st, you'll be able to to order the book. Good. So you, you can find it at all fine book retailers and I, I would assume Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all that. Yeah. My publisher is the dashing... French-American historian of Russia, Paul de Cunois. We um, sealed the deal for the book uh, sitting in the East India Club in London. 
Okay, well, there's the opener to uh, episode two of Stories of Lad, as Peter puts it. Yes. Thanks for coming on. This, this is a lot of fun and also informative, which is a nice combination always. And come back soon. It was great. You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. We'll see you next time.